And as Jesus' mission attracts a large following, he does something even more provocative. He forms these people into a new Israel by appointing over them the 12 disciples as leaders corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel. And then Jesus teaches his manifesto of an upside-down kingdom, or as Luke calls it, the sermon given on the plain. He says God's love for the outsider and the poor means that his kingdom brings a reversal of all of our value systems. He is here to form a new alternative people of God who are going to respond to Jesus' invitation by practicing radical generosity, by serving the poor. People who are going to lead by serving and live by peacemaking and forgiveness. People who are deeply pious but who reject religious hypocrisy. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So this morning I'm reading out of uh, Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 26. And in a weird twist of fate for once, I'm actually reading the passage that if you're following along in our Bible reading plan, this is what you're reading today. Um, It's like the first time that's happened since we started doing this. So good for me. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Don't you love it when Jesus says a bunch of stuff that makes you really uncomfortable while you're reading it? Um, in, in both Hebrew and Greek, there are two different words that get translated into English as blessed. Um, and, and the two Greek words parallel the two Hebrew words, so they, they get translated the same way. They, they, they are effectively the same word. Um, one of the Hebrew words is barakah, which in Greek is euologio, and it, it does not appear anywhere in the Beatitudes. It's, it's almost a different word. It's the word that you use in prayer when you're asking God for some sort of blessing in your life. Um, either for yourself or for your community. It's, it's something that you want from God that you have not yet received. So this is the word you would use if you were saying, Lord, bless the sick, or something along those lines. Um, so again, that doesn't show up 
in the Beatitudes. The word that gets used here is in Hebrew, it's asir, and in Greek, it's makarios. And, and that's what we find Jesus saying here. And, and this word, it does not express a desire or a wish uh, for something you don't have yet. It's not being used to invoke a request uh, for something that hasn't happened yet. It actually describes an existing state of good fortune or happiness. So it affirms something that is already present. And in English, we communicate the difference between these two different versions of the word blessed by putting an accent on the end, blessed instead of just blessed. And, and the difference here is actually important for understanding what Jesus is saying in these Beatitudes. Because he isn't telling the poor that one day they will receive the kingdom of God. He's telling them they're already there. They've already got it. The blessings and the woes that are pronounced in this sermon are not describing future realities or guarantees or promises. They are describing the present state of the people Jesus is addressing. So with that in mind, let's dive into the specific things he lists. So blessed are the poor. And, and Luke's gospel just says, blessed are you who are poor. But in Matthew's gospel, he elaborates a bit more, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. And people are trying to figure out why they recorded this differently for a long time. And some people will say that, well, Matthew's gospel is written down later. And so Matthew takes this very literal thing from Luke and he spiritualizes it. But that's really not accurate. To understand what Jesus is doing and why there's a difference in the two, you have to understand that Jesus sees himself as being part of this long tradition of Israelite prophets. And in particular, he identifies with the ministry of Isaiah. This is another reason, by the way, why it's so important to read the Old Testament to understand the Gospels. Jesus aligns himself with Isaiah. He quotes Isaiah all the time. He uses the same kind of language that Isaiah uses. And in the book of Isaiah, the poor are those who are humble and who are pious and who earnestly seek after God. Isaiah almost never uses the word poor to describe someone who lives in material poverty. It's almost exclusively used to refer to people who are humble, who are pious, and most importantly, who know that they need the grace of God. And so Jesus affirms that these are the blessed ones who will, or who already have, received the kingdom of God. Now all his Jewish listeners are longing for the day when the Jewish nation state is restored and God alone would be their king. When they would rise up in rebellion, overthrow the Romans, and establish their own literal physical kingdom on earth and be ruled directly by God through their Messiah. That's what they want. And Jesus is telling them that for the poor, for, for the humble, for the pious, for the ones who actually know deep in their bones that they need the grace of God, that kingdom has already arrived. And we forget sometimes that, that people have been translating the Bible from the original Greek into other languages for a long, long time. And we forget that because in the West, they translated it into Latin once and then they didn't do anything with it for like 500 years. But in the East, people were happily translating the Gospels and the Old Testament into Arabic and Syriac and Aramaic, which is what Jesus spoke uh, right from the very beginning. And so the original translation of this into the Syriac language, it's one of the oldest translations of the Bible in the world. And it records this verse as saying, happy it is for the poor 
that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They're, they're already happy. They're already in the kingdom. And so it's in light of this, this idea that, that it's the people who are humble, who know that they need the grace of God, who are already in the kingdom of God, who are already living this future reality that you keep thinking is what you're longing for. They're already there. And it's in light of that that you have to interpret the rest of the verses. So then he talks about the hungry. And again, in Matthew's gospel, he writes it down differently. Luke just says, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Matthew writes it out saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And again, you have to understand this as Jesus using prophetic language in Luke's gospel, and then Matthew kind of elaborates the deeper meaning so that you're not left in any doubt as to what the imagery is. But all throughout the prophetic books, you'll find things like hunger and thirst being used as symbols rather than referring to the literal physical condition. Now, most of us in this room have never felt real hunger. You felt like hungry between meals. You might have fasted for an extended period of time, either for spiritual reasons or for medical reasons. And you felt that kind of hunger. But I would doubt that there are many people in here, if any, who have ever felt life-threatening hunger or chronic hunger, not having enough to eat for day after day after day after day, getting by on less than what you actually need. But Jesus' listeners would absolutely have felt that. By one estimate, the average household in ancient Israel experienced a, a caloric shortfall, not enough food, for 100 days out of the year. So most people in these crowds that are listening to Jesus talk spent a bit over three months out of the year without enough food to eat. They understood hunger. They knew what unrelenting hunger felt like how it drives you, how it dominates your thoughts, how satisfying that hunger becomes an obsession, something you absolutely cannot take your mind off because your body won't let you. So the actual thrust of this message is that he's, he's thinking of those who hunger for righteousness. He's talking about then an all-consuming passion for righteousness. He doesn't say, blessed are those who are righteous, who've already got there, who've arrived. He says, blessed are those who hunger for it. He's, he's presupposing that the faithful followers of God are always having to strive for righteousness. The blessed are those who continue at whatever cost on their pilgrimage to righteousness, not those who think that they've already arrived. So it's this constant, relentless drive toward righteousness that marks the blessed. So what is righteousness? We use this word a lot. It pops up all over the New Testament. Paul uses it in every one of his letters. And it's a clearly important theme throughout the Old Testament. So we have to understand what it means. And again, there's, there's a Hebrew word and there's a Greek word. And they mean essentially the same thing. The important thing to know is that in, in either language, the word that gets translated as righteousness, it, it does not describe an absolute, ideal, ethical standard. 
That's what we usually think it means. We usually think that righteousness means you've met the bar, you've hit the standard, you behave in a certain way, um, you've reached a certain level of purity or holiness or goodness or, or sinlessness, but that's never actually how the word is defined in Scripture. And it's not how it's used. Righteousness describes a relationship. And in every relationship that we have, that relationship makes claims on our conduct. When we satisfy those claims, we are righteous. Without those claims on our conduct, the relationship can't exist in the first place. So as an example, our friends can rightly expect for us to keep in touch with them. Right? They can expect us to keep them updated on what's going on in our lives, on how we're doing, on our health, and then to ask about all that stuff for them. If we don't do that, then the friendship ceases to exist because the interactions that keep it going are gone. And they can also expect us to treat them in a certain way. Friends can expect us to be generous with them, to be kind, to be thoughtful, right? All the things we would normally think of as a friendship. Because if you don't do those things, then there is no relationship to sustain. You, as the congregation of this church, can make certain claims on my conduct as a pastor, right? You can expect that I will behave myself in public. That might be a risky assumption, but, you know. You can also expect that I'm willing to, to sit down with you and, and listen to your problems, help, help you talk through things in your life, pray with you. You can expect that I'm spending more time praying and reading my Bible than uh, the average person because I've got to be ready for Sunday mornings, right? You, you can make claims on how I live my life and how I behave. And the really fun part is I can do the same thing to you, right? I can, I can expect that you actually spend your Sunday mornings here at church. I can expect that you are generous and consistent in your giving to your church. Why? Well, because if we don't make those claims on each other, then this relationship does not exist, right? If you aren't here on Sunday morning, if you aren't giving, you don't have a church. If I'm not here prepared to preach, if I'm not prepared to pray with you, to sit with you, then I'm not really doing my job as your pastor, right? This is how righteousness works in the Bible. And it's how it works with God specifically. It's not an ethical standard that we all have to meet. It's about our relationship with God and the claims that God makes on how we live our lives, as well as the claims that we make on how God behaves. Half the Psalms in the Old Testament are people getting mad that they don't think God is holding up his end of the bargain. God makes claims on us. We make claims on him. And so with that in mind, there are specific aspects of biblical righteousness that you can describe. One of them is God's acts of salvation in history. Things like the exodus from Egypt, the, the manna in the wilderness to feed his people when he brought them into the desert. All the times God delivered his people uh, victory in battle and protection from their enemies. And for us, the most important one of all, the cross. These are examples of the righteousness of God. And there's also an aspect of being declared righteous, that God declares us righteous out of our love for us, even when we fall short. So most of my friends recognize by this point in our lives that I am terrible at keeping in touch with them. I'm, you know, maintaining personal relationships over long distances is not something I'm very good at. I'm in my head a lot. I just don't think to do it. Now, thankfully, I have close friends who take it upon themselves to reach out to me. And so they, they are the ones who keep the lines of communication open. 
If they haven't heard from me in a while, they'll give me a call or they'll, give, or they'll text me and see what's going on. They'll find ways to do that. And in that sense, they declare me righteous in that relationship. Even though I'm failing to uphold my end. So righteousness is also the human response to God's act of declaring us righteous. Right? When God gives us this new status, when God declares us righteous, when he offers us these gifts of salvation, we can't just walk away from it. The gift requires a response. If one of my buddies sends me a text and I just ignore it, that's not going to work, right? I still have to respond to them in order to maintain the relationship. Otherwise, it doesn't matter what they do. Likewise, we can't just receive God's grace and then go on living as if nothing has changed. That's not righteousness. We have to respond to God's gift appropriately. And so then he talks about the people who were weeping, right? Blessed are you who weep, which doesn't sound right. If you see someone weeping, your first response is not, oh, what a lucky person. They must be so happy. No, I mean, your first response is pity, right? So the question is, what are they weeping about? And, and Jesus doesn't specify. Because weeping can come for all sorts of reasons. It's just a general statement he makes. Blessed are all of you who are suffering. And that, too, sounds a little weird. And it, the, the New Testament is really full of times when the New Testament authors will talk about suffering and, and will say things like, rejoice in the midst of your suffering and things like that. And it sounds weird to our ears. And so we have to specify that they're not actually encouraging people to seek out things that make them suffer, right? This isn't a masochistic book, okay? It's not telling you, go make your life miserable because you're blessed when you're, when you're miserable. That's not what's going on. We're never encouraged to seek out suffering, but we're also not encouraged to avoid it. Nowhere in the Bible are you encouraged to avoid suffering or pain or misery. Because suffering is a part of life, and no one makes it through this life unscathed. We all suffer. We all, some of us will suffer a lot more than others. But all of us will know times of deep pain. It's unavoidable. And Jesus teaches us that suffering can be an incredible teacher. We don't know the depths of the human spirit until we've endured incredible suffering. Pain has a way of rearranging our priorities. To become a refugee, to have to flee your home, whether it's because of a natural disaster or a human one, uh, it, it's horrible. We wouldn't wish that on anybody. We would never recommend that you seek to live in a place where you're going to have to become a refugee. But nothing will make it clearer to you that your material possessions are truly worthless and all that really matters is life itself. As most of you will know by now, uh, anytime a, a major hurricane strikes, there are people who will stay behind and decide to brave the storm. Brave, stupid, whatever you want to call it. Right? Some people will do it. <laughs> wives are pointing to their husbands and it's, someone will always do that right someone will choose to stay behind and and what you see anywhere that this happens if you you know go and, and read interviews with with people after the fact there is always 
a difference that emerges between the people who evacuated and the people who stayed. The, when they talk to the people who stayed, what you hear from them is gratitude. They're grateful to be alive. They're grateful to have lived through the storm. When they interview the people who evacuated, that's where you find the despair and the anguish over all the destruction. And again, that doesn't mean you should go place yourself in the path of a destructive hurricane so you learn what gratitude is. That's not the point. But those who suffer and mourn deep losses can be blessed by God in the midst of their suffering. And since we're all going to suffer in this life, and you can't truly avoid it, you might as well go into it expecting for God to teach you something through the process. But we don't just weep for our own suffering. We see the evil and the injustice all around us, and we mourn for it. We, we mourn over our own failure to love God and neighbor. We mourn our inability to conquer evil without God's help. And so the gist of this verse is not about people who wallow in self-pity and, and focus on their own pain with no sensitivity to the pain of others around them. It's, it's about those who suffer and mourn because of their failures to love God, because of the state of the world that we live in and the pain that they see in others. These are the blessed, the ones who see a broken world and they weep longing for the day when God will fix it all. And then there's the last one, right? Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. doesn't sound right again, right? This is not what we would call blessed. But the reality is, we may well find ourselves despised for the way we live and for the things we believe, for being faithful, for rejecting the values of the world and holding up the values of the gospel. And when that happens, we are blessed by God, already part of the kingdom. Now, the reality is you and I aren't, aren't going to have to deal with a whole lot of that. We live in a place that's fairly tolerant of Christian beliefs, even when they disagree with us. The worst that might happen is people will think we're, we're foolish for believing what we believe. We, we, we might be the weirdos on the outside looking in, but, but we're not going to face you know, real physical persecution, which does still happen in parts of the world. There are still places where, where being a Christian and telling people about it is putting your life in danger. And Jesus dealt with both of those things. Jesus dealt with being... Um, insulted for, his, for what he was teaching and for what he believed, and he dealt with being physically persecuted as well as socially and emotionally persecuted. When that happens, we are experiencing part of what Jesus himself experienced. And so we are already part of the kingdom. And then we get to the really fun part, the woes, right? Everyone loves this bit. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are full now. Woe to you who laugh now, right? Woe to you when all people speak well of you. None of these make a lot of sense to us. And we tend to read these, by the way, as like threats, right? Woe to you, meaning uh, God's going to get you for this. <laughs> that's how we read it. But that's not actually what it's written as. It, it, it's, it's more of like a statement of regret or compassion. Alas, you that are rich, you've already received your consolation. I'm so sorry. 
And remember, each of these corresponds then to one of the blessings. So, so if the poor is prophetic language that is referring to those who are pious and humble and deeply aware of their need for grace, then the rich are those who are opposite. They're the arrogant, the hedonistic, the ones who are convinced of their own self-sufficiency, who don't see their need for God. It's worth pointing out when we read things like this, by the standards of most of the world, everyone in this room is fabulously wealthy. When we try and boil these, these statements down to just their, their pure material meaning, we are going to run into some problems. Especially because there are plenty of parables that Jesus will tell later on where he describes rich people who are righteous. It's very clear he's not... He's using prophetic metaphorical language or he's not necessarily drawing a sharp line between rich and poor and saying, these ones are good, these ones are bad. He's drawing on the language of the Old Testament prophets. And what he's really comparing is the people who see the world as it really is, who see the state of the world that it's in, and long for the day when God will come and fix it, versus the people who see the world as it is and think, this is fine, I like this, please don't change anything. So we are inclined to associate blessing and happiness with comfortable, easy lives and with material gain. And so we will avoid struggle and we will avoid suffering and we will avoid pain at all costs. We could spend all day talking about the industries that have sprung up to help us avoid pain at all costs and all the ways in which you can now take a pill to do something that you don't necessarily need a pill for but you don't want to do the hard work, and this is faster and easier. When we encounter struggling, when we encounter suffering or pain in our lives in any form, we take it as this sign that, that something has gone seriously, seriously wrong, and we've got to end the pain, end the suffering, end the struggle as soon as possible. John Wesley's notes on this passage, and particularly on this last one when it talks about being hated and persecuted for the faith, his only note there is, let this thought reconcile us to adversity and awaken our caution when the world smiles upon us. It's the opposite of what we normally think. We don't want to be reconciled to adversity. We want to avoid adversity. We, want, we take adversity as a sign that we're doing something wrong. But Jesus faced adversity throughout his ministry. His entire life he dealt with the adversity of people hearing his message and rejecting it and hating him for it, even as others embraced it and welcomed it. And the apostles faced the same thing, and so did the early church. In fact, if you want to track through the history of the church and all the places where the church has veered off of the gospel, what you see is that when the church becomes widely accepted as a major moral and political force in society, every single time, that's when they start losing sight of the gospel message. Every time. When the church is doing the best job of being faithful to the gospel, is usually when it is facing the most adversity from the world around it. Because the message of the gospel has always been painfully countercultural. And it always will be. It doesn't mean that we're meant to be like deliberately offensive or rude or mean or anything like that. But, but we ought to be a little concerned if we aren't facing any sort of adversity or if we never have, because it means we've likely left part of the gospel behind somewhere along the way. 
Jesus says it's the people who are suffering, who are weeping, who are consumed with a passion for righteousness, who are truly blessed. Because these are the people who are most like him. These are the people who look at the world in all its brokenness and know how different it is supposed to be. And so the good news of Jesus Christ is not and never has been that his followers will be universally loved, that sharing his message will make us popular, or that we get to live an easy life free of pain and suffering. We are, in fact, guaranteed that if we faithfully follow Jesus, we will at times be wildly unpopular for speaking the truth. We will be brought to grief over not just our own pain and suffering, but, but all the pain and suffering that we see around us. And we will have an all-consuming passion for righteousness that won't ever be satisfied this side of the grave. And so in that sense, we'll always be unsettled and unsatisfied in this life. The good news is that Jesus is coming to finish the job that he started, and those of us who are blessed to be poor, hungry, and weeping have already inherited the kingdom. Those of us who aren't happy with the way the world is now will rejoice when Jesus comes to make all things new. The woes are reserved for the people who are perfectly satisfied with how things are because they won't like what Jesus is going to do. So we can take comfort in the knowledge that, that our holy dissatisfaction is a good sign. When we're frustrated by the world that we live in, that's a good sign. When we weep over the state of the world, that's a good sign because it means we are longing for the day when Jesus will come and make things right. It means that deep down, we want to live in the kingdom of God and we'll rejoice together on the day when Jesus comes and brings that kingdom in its fullness. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.